Park Hopping Podcast number 84, Desensory Overload. Lots of important things to say. This is not art. Coming up next in our show. This is not media. First, the news. This is not news. Now, welcome back to the show. This is another crappy podcast production. Celebrating over 12 years of posting Disney stuff on the internet. This is another crappy podcast production. Hey, looking for a great way to squeeze a bit of extra magic out of your next visit to Walt Disney World? Then check out the new 2009 edition of the Hassle-Free Walt Disney World Vacation Book by Stephen Barrett. It's a great reference for planning your trip and touring the parks, including plans specifically for adults and teens, families with young children, and even seniors. Check it out today at www.intrepidtraveler.com. Hi there, this is Alan from DisneyFans.com, and this is the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 84, the podcast that proves anyone can have their own podcast. Welcome back to the Park Hopping Podcast, recorded using state-of-the-art digital technology right here in the heart of America, Des Moines, Iowa. Previously on the Park Hopping Podcast, we finished off our 2007 Halloween visit by skipping forward a few days to check out the Happy Hallowishes fireworks show at Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom. Today, well, a, a quick episode just to act as a transition before we start park hopping again next week. This October has been one of the busiest months I've had since about 15 years ago when I owned and operated my own music store in a mall in Texas, and I had to work pretty much open to close seven days a week. I've been spending my weekdays at my day job, then extended weekends like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights, working at a local haunted house attraction. The place is called Sleepy Hollow Sports Park, and I only mention it here as somewhat on topic because the local newspaper refers to them as the Disney World of Haunted Attractions in our area, since they have about seven things to do and you can buy one ticket and see it all. Kind of like a park hopper at Disney, I guess. But I digress. Anyway, this year I did some custom sound effects for them, the TV commercial, and then I acted, if you can call it that, in a very intense comedic Halloween hayride. I played a cop. Well, when I get some time, I may share some stories about how crazy the whole experience was, but not today. Today, a few feedback items from past episodes. During my discussion of the Mickey's Not-So-Scary Boo-To-You Halloween Parade, I wasn't real clear on the origins, names, and histories of some of the older characters that appeared in that parade. While proving the wonders of the internet, Big Brian took a bit of time to do a bit of research and share it with me. Clarabelle the Cow, he says, started out the same year as Mickey Mouse. 1928, in a short called Plain Crazy. That was a Mickey cartoon, wasn't it? And she made appearances up until about 1942. She had a few cameos since, including one in Who Framed Roger Rabbit, but then kind of drifted away until she was brought back in some of the modern Disney Saturday morning series, such as Mickey Mouse Works and the uh, Disney's House of Mouse. So that answers my question to why Disney would use such an old character so predominantly in the parade. Clarabelle has also been reintroduced to modern audiences... Uh, through this and apparently is about to get her own series, The Clarabelle Show on Playhouse Disney. So, um, now I know, and I guess for those of you who didn't, so do you. Werner from Yesterland.com, man, I love that site, also contributed a few tidbits concerning Le Visionarium, the French timekeeper attraction, 
In what he called proof that you can't believe everything you read on the internet, he forwarded me a tidbit he found on a website dedicated to Gerard Depardieu, and it said, quote, Developed by Walt Disney's Theme Park Productions in Circle Vision 360, this is a film made for Disney theme parks. It debuted at the Paris Disney and is now at Disneyland in California. For those who don't know, Timekeeper never has been presented at Disneyland in California. Disneyland's old 360 theater was last used as the queue for the short-lived Rocket Rods ride back in 1998. Today, that building has been converted into Buzz Lightyear's Astro Blasters, so the only Circle Vision theaters that remain in the U.S. are now at Epcot, at least I think that's all that's out there. Werner also shed some light on the version of this attraction that's found in Japan. He writes, quote, I saw the Circle Vision movie from time to time at Tokyo Disneyland's Visionarium back in 2000. If I recall correctly, the film was dubbed into Japanese, but there were headphones in the back rows that allowed guests to listen in their choice of French or English. As far as I know, the version in Japan was the same as the original French version of the Circle Vision presentation, or at least it was not edited as much as the version at the Magic Kingdom Park. I never saw it at Disneyland Paris, even though it was playing the first time I visited that park. Yes, in a scene at Charles de Gaulle Airport, Gerald Depardieu had a brief role as a baggage handler who helped Jules Verne and Nine Eye escape. The scenes at Charles de Gaulle Airport provided an opportunity to show off the Concorde. That would have been cool. The Wikipedia entry for Timekeeper has a chart comparing the Disneyland Paris version and the Magic Kingdom Park version. It seems the main cuts were to the U.S. version, uh, Red Square, and the airport sequences, presumably because they were too European for American audiences. End quote. Once again, Wikipedia to the rescue. He then provided a link to a site called magicsparks.com, which appears to be part of the excellent audio site Sound of Magic, which contained a scene-by-scene description of the French original and some sound clips, too. So very cool. Thanks, Werner from Yesterland.com. And now, something completely different. The sounds of Main Street. The smells of cookies and candy. A damp splash of mist or a gush of wind. These are just a few examples of artificial sensory experiences that we encounter when we visit a Disney park. And it's these items that connect with multiple senses on multiple levels that help set apart the Disney experience from, say, the Six Flags experience. In the past few episodes, we've touched on a topic of uh, how real-world senses, such as hearing a certain sound or smelling a certain scent, can instantly transport you to somewhere else, kind of like how hearing a song from high school can make you instantly remember your senior prom, or in the case of some of my listeners, how smelling diesel fuel can make you think of Disneyland's Autopia, or hearing a train horn can make you think of crossing over Bay Lake on a ferry boat at Walt Disney World. Well, today on the Park Hopping Podcast, I wanted to talk a bit about some of the intentional sensory experiences you may or may not have noticed. And by intentional, I mean just that. The smells of popcorn should hardly be surprising at a place that sells popcorn. Or the sound of race cars should hardly be surprising at a racetrack. So first, we start with the most obvious one, and that's background music. In the early days of broadcast radio, the radio dramas of the day relied on sound effects and music to set the mood or tell a story. Organists played transitional tunes to help the listener shift from one scene to the next. Suspenseful music helped build suspense in a radio crime drama. And even in the days of silent motion pictures, an in-theater pianist or organist would play along with the visuals on the screen to help set the mood. Comical music for a vaudeville slapstick-type movie or dramatic action music for a, a great train robbery or whatever. 
As movies gained sound and became talkies, background music was used extensively to enhance the visuals. A horror film that never once showed an actual monster could convey the suspense and horror just with the right background music. If you've ever seen any making of specials, you may have noticed how bland and boring a scene can be before the music is added. So, was it any surprise that when Disneyland opened in 1955, after being built and designed by Hollywood set designers and movie producers, that it too would make use of movie components like a soundtrack? Walking through the entrance gates, visitors used to find attraction posters along the base of the Main Street train station. These were similar to the movie posters found in the lobby of a movie theater. Walking to either side of the station revealed a tunnel, and as you walked through the tunnel, more and more of Main Street itself would come into view, just like the curtains rising before a theater performance, though I guess in these days most younger folks have never seen a movie theater that had a curtain that rose before the main feature. And finally, walking into Main Street itself would be the establishing shot, with a soundtrack of music playing and even opening credits found hidden on the doors and windows of, on the shops along the street. All these visuals are great, but take away the background music and Main Street suddenly becomes a more desolate, though still pretty, place to be hanging out at. Replace the turn-of-the-century style music with hard rock or pop music and suddenly the whole thing just seems wrong, or at least wildly out of place. For one of the anniversaries of Disneyland, apparently they played music from 1955 on Main Street in tribute to the year the park opened. And it's hard to imagine what it must have felt like to walk down Main Street listening to the doo-wop sounds of music that was still 50 years beyond the time period of the buildings around you. But it's not really the year of the music that matters, it's the style of music that's important. In Frontierland, you want to hear Western music. In Tomorrowland, you expect New Age or electronic music. In Fantasyland, you expect more orchestrated music. In Toontown, you expect silly symphonies and cartoon music, that kind of thing. No one questions the fact that Tomorrowland is playing 1970s New Age music, or that Future World at Epcot is playing electronic songs from ten years past. It just has to sound or feel appropriate, even if time-wise it really isn't. But interestingly enough, over the years the music loops used in the past, the history-type sections of the park, such as Frontierland, they've been updated. I know I was surprised when I recognized the theme song to Mel Brooks' Blazing Saddles playing in Frontierland. I mean, that's a 1970s comedy, but the western-sounding song does fit the mood of the area. I bring up this point quite often when talking about Renaissance festivals. Like, turkey legs are very popular at Renaissance festivals, yet the turkey was not indigenous to Europe. Historians don't even think turkeys were known to Europe until Spaniards brought them over from the Americas in the 1500s. But a big chunk of smoked meat just seems like it could have existed back then, so it's accepted by the non-history majors. The same thing happens with music at these events. A folk song from the 1800s might blend in quite well at a Renaissance festival set in the 1500s, unless it starts singing about the blue and the gray of the Civil War. And yes, I've heard just that at Renaissance festivals, and no one seemed to notice or care. Likewise, modern orchestra music used in a period film set hundreds of years ago may feel fine, though it's probably pretty out of place using instruments... That didn't exist during the time period. We just may not notice this unless those out-of-place instruments were electric guitars or synthesizers that really stood out. Normally I'd say, but I digress at this point, but in this case, this is my point. It's not really about the accuracy or historical representation of what we sense while visiting a Disney park. It's more about what we don't notice, the things that don't stand out. 
We look past a well-themed computer point-of-sale system at a shop in Adventureland, but drop in a plastic and metal Tomorrowland-themed drink stand there, and it would immediately stand out and not fill right in the Western section. So back to music. Ultimately, it seems like the job of good background music is to simply not stand out. I'm not totally sure Disney always succeeds there, since if I suddenly start thinking about a 1970s Mel Brooks comedy instead of the Wild West, the fantasy is broken a bit. Likewise, to some, hearing the theme song from Bonanza or another TV western may transport them back to the 1960s living room they grew up in rather than keep them isolated in the 1800s far away from the modern world. It's a tricky job, but overall, I know Disney succeeds simply because I know so many people who have never noticed the music. And that, my friends, is what today's podcast is about. Sensory stuff we probably don't notice as opposed to the intentional effects we are meant to notice. Now, here's an example of intentional effects. When Epcot opened in 1982, writers on Spaceship Earth were amazed at the smell of the the Rome scene, the burning. A year later, Horizon visitors couldn't stop talking about how they really could smell those oranges in the desert farming scene. And in the years that followed, rides like Soarin' Over California would let us smell pine trees, or It's Tough to Be a Bug would let us smell... Well, a stink bug. That and the skunk at Journey into Imagination with Figment or the chili dog burp at Stitch's Greatest Escape may not be the most pleasant smells, but at least Disney balances them out with more pleasant smells like the cake and Mickey's Fill Her Magic. So, good or bad, they all stand out because they are, pardon the pun, in-your-face effects, much like being splashed by water or feeling wind during appropriate scenes in a movie-based attraction. So, to me, the real dissensory magic is uh, the thing that you probably don't notice. Did you know that Space Mountain, the roller coaster, has fans blowing towards the track to make it feel like you're going faster than you really are? This trick was also used much earlier in the super speed tunnel section at Disneyland's People Mover as the slow-moving cars made their way through a room with a high-speed projection on the wall, making you visually feel like you had suddenly sped up. The wind just helped add to the realism. You can read more about the Long Gone People Mover, by the way, over at WernersYesterland.com. And at Disney World, If You Had Wings used the same trick, though you may never have noticed it if you weren't looking for it, looking down and seeing the fans uh, below your vehicle off to the sides. You can read more about If You Had Wings over at WidenYourWorld.net. Widen Your World is kind of the uh, Yesterland for Disney World. And and it goes much deeper than this. Some of the things that fascinate me about Disney are really, really subtle. On Main Street, they actually pump out the smell of vanilla in front of the candy shop. Um, the Disneyland tour guides insist this was just to add to the realism of Main Street, though the skeptics uh, think it might have just been Walt's accountants trying to increase the sell of candy. But either way, it adds some extra depth to a visit to the park. And there's one other place in Disneyland where they pump out scents like this, and I'm not talking about in a ride or show. So does anyone know where it is? And if you don't, the tour guides will be happy to point it out to you during the holiday tour. So that's that's your hint. Let me know if you know. Podcast at DisneyFans.com By the way, if I recall correctly, the candy shop switches from vanilla to a different scent during Christmas time. I think it was peppermint, something like that. And that's another tidbit from the Christmas time at Disneyland tour, so hopefully it's accurate. 
Some other examples include some upper-level windows on Main Street and in Norland Square at Disneyland, where you can hear things going on in the rooms above you. If I recall, these were added sometimes in the mid to late 1990s. I think there are, or at least were, three different windows on Main Street, a dentist, a piano teacher, and I believe a guest in the hotel taking a shower that ends up being much too hot or cold or something like that. I'm sure the entire audio loops for these windows are floating around somewhere on the internet, probably over on mousebits.com, if you're really curious. In New Orleans Square, you can hear a southern belle interacting with her talking bird and becoming quite annoyed when it starts singing the Tiki Room theme song. I think there's at least one other. uh, It's uh, like some kind of voodoo princess or something. So how many of them do you know about? Anyone got a full list? There possibly are things that I don't know. MGM Studios in Florida also gained some speakers that would play the sounds of traffic in the New York Street area of the park. It's as if someone at Disney had a neat idea and started to find places all over the park that could use a bit of extra background sound. Those traffic sounds bother me, though. My city instinct always keeps me from stepping off a curb to cross the street thinking I'm going to hit by a car when I'm there. Well, at least it's effective at setting the mood. Uh, let's see. Switching away from the sounds of the big city, you can't forget things like the jungle noises or the forest sounds. Heck, Disney even switches from daytime sounds of birds to nighttime sounds of crickets in certain places in the park. And I bet many folks don't realize that all those frog noises or bird sounds are just looping sound files on some digital audio repeater stashed away in some master show control building somewhere. The fact that people don't even notice these fake sounds is particularly impressive in California, where Disneyland is literally surrounded by a densely populated city of strip malls and hotels. It's amazing that those sounds can be so convincing when just a few blocks away is a busy city intersection, and the thought of wild animals being anywhere nearby is is total fantasy. I guess it makes sense, though, since Disney specializes in fantasy. So there we go, a few dissensory examples. Background music, which is missed if not there, and clashes if not fitting. Ambient sounds like those upstairs windows that, when we notice, help add to an extra layer of realism. Physical effects like sprays of water or gusts of wind that make simulated experiences seem a bit more real. And smells. It's because of all this that you really can never get the idea of what a visit to a Disney park is like just by hearing audio on a podcast like this one, or watching video on YouTube. To those who may have only visited a Six Flags, they may think that the only thing special a theme park does is maybe pipe in some background music and have some themed buildings. But I think it goes much, much farther at a Disney park and maybe even places like Universal Studios, though I'm not sure if I ever noticed Universal Studios doing as much stuff like this. But then again, maybe they do, and they do it so well I just never noticed. Since we've talked a bit about real-world things that trigger fake-world Disney memories, I thought it might be fun to ask, what's your favorite fake dissensory experience? What's the little sight, sound, scent, or physical effect that really makes Disney stand out for you? Let me know by writing podcast at DisneyFans.com. If I get enough responses, I'll share them on a future episode, and maybe this little exercise will get you to pay some extra attention to the park the next time you visit. And speaking of visits, I told you it was a quick show. The next time you're there, be sure to take an extra picture, shoot some extra video, because you really never know when something you like, love, or hate is going to go away and never be around again. And on that note, I think that'll do it for me this time, so be sure to visit DisneyFans.com, where you can browse around 53,000 digital pictures I've taken at Disneyland, Disney World, and other theme parks across the country. 
as well as dozens of downloadable video files from the Disney parks. And if you want to drop me a note, my email address again is podcast at disneyfans.com. This has been the Park Hopping Podcast, show number 84, Desensory Overload. Thanks for listening. Another Crappy Podcast production. Be sure to visit anothercrappypodcast.com to learn more about this and other equally exciting podcasts. Hey, if you're planning a trip to Walt Disney World and plan to stay off-site and you've ever wondered what the deal is with all those cheap ticket timeshare promotions, visit DisneyFans.com secret. You can get a special deal at a luxury resort all by enjoying a great breakfast while taking a tour and listening to a self-pitch. That's DisneyFans.com secret.